If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10, if we could uh, get the overhead light. Romans chapter 10. We've been going through the book of Romans uh, for a couple weeks now. Well, actually a couple months. It feels like a couple weeks. We've sped through it, and we've arrived at a place in Scripture that is perhaps familiar to anyone that has ever walked into evangelical church. It is perhaps some of the most quoted scripture that has ever been articulated in Christianity, perhaps short of John 3.16. It is what has often been called part of the Roman road. People over the years have used the book of Romans to lead people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And they've chosen certain verses out of that book, the very book that we're in, and Two of the most um, poignant and specific verses on how a person might be saved are in the verses that we're about to cover today. Now, you may be thinking, well, having said that, Scott, really, why should I listen? I've been in church all my life. I've made this decision, the most important decision I think anyone can make. Why should I really listen? I mean, can I just tune you out? Well, if you are a part of this church and you do pay attention when I say our mission is to make disciples, you might want to know how it is that you can share the gospel. And as you think through these verses, maybe for the very first time, maybe you've heard them but not really studied them or thought about them, you might realize there's some important specifics to cover when you're sharing the gospel. And it's not just important, but it might also help you. You see, in my life, I know a lot of people who have claimed to made a decision to follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They've prayed a prayer back at this point in time, at this place, they'll tell you that. But looking at their life from that point forward, you're wondering, are, are they really saved? Because it doesn't seem like anything changed. And as you talk to them and ask them certain questions, they will give you certain answers. But I think as we study the verses this morning, you might understand why those answers come up short sometimes. So let's begin with a little context. In Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, it says this, the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, writing to the church at Rome, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the them in this case is his uh, brothers in the flesh, physical descendants of Abraham, Jews of his day, if, you, if you've been with us in the previous weeks, you know that the Apostle Paul, through the book of Romans, he was wrestling within the difficulties of the church on, on how Jews of his day and Gentiles could come together and was explaining how the gospel impacted them in different ways, but in the same as well, because they had different histories, but there was one way in which a person could be saved. And he says, it's my heart's desire for them is that they may be saved, because by The time that Paul is writing this, though initially at Pentecost, thousands of Jews, in fact, the church was almost exclusively Jewish to begin with, but after that point in time, many, many Jews began to reject the gospel. In fact, Christianity, though it was originally seen as a continuum of Judaism, it it has now begun to be seen as a sect of Judaism and and a, a sect that's being rejected. So there was this great deal of confusion, and he says this, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit 
to God's righteousness. And we covered a little bit of ground here last week, and it's important to understand today. I explained one of the great apologists of our day, um, a guy by the name of, of Wallace. He's a former L.A. homicide detective, of all things. And he explains and talks to people about Jesus and how you come to believe. And not only how you come to believe, but why some people disbelieve. And the question he got and continues to get all the time is this. If the evidence for Christianity, I mean evidence, not just belief or philosophy, but the evidence for Christianity is so powerful, why don't people believe? And he explains there's basically three kinds of belief. There's rational belief based upon facts and evidence. And then there's emotional belief that's based upon feeling. And then there's volitional belief where you simply decide. And you can decide on facts or not. And in Christianity, you need all three of those. We have the facts of Jesus and all the history of the Old Testament. And then we have the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts, convicting of us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And God pouring his love into our hearts when we are saved. And so you have this incredible relationship that is full of emotion. But there are times that you might not quite understand all the facts. And yes, you have the Holy Spirit convicting you. And maybe even after you've made that decision in life, you come across certain situations where you feel like throwing in the towel, quite honestly. And you have to make a volitional decision that says, you know what, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand the future, but I know the past and I know the God who loves me. And I'm going to decide to follow him regardless of the cost. And so you have all of those. And we move within those areas of belief in, in every area of our life, in simple areas and really complex and serious areas. And sometimes we avoid parts of those. It, I would love to believe that donuts are a good, healthy food for me. I, that's that emotion in me. And I can decide that donuts are good for me. And I can eat them all day long. But the facts, the evidence, the rationale behind that will be evident in my life fairly soon. I'll have this little spare tire right around here. And I'm working on that, I promise. But it's hard, man. When you have Sweet Wife Bakery in town, it is tough not to get, eat a donut. Well, he's saying this. You have to submit to God's righteousness. At some point, you have to make that decision. You can't make it up on your own. You cannot make up your own evidence. The evidence is the evidence. He says this, in closing in verse 4, picking up in verse 5, he says, For Christ is the end of the law, or the goal of the law. It is its destination. The law was pointing to Christ. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So he's talking to those who would believe and the law points to Christ. That is righteousness. And then in verse 5, we begin to unpack a text that may surprise you. You see, the Apostle Paul here shares the gospel, and he quotes Jesus not one time. The Apostle Paul is about to share the gospel through the Old Testament text, the scriptures of their day which is quite interesting because the Jews had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, their Savior, who was prophesied in the Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul's approach is to take the very scriptures and prove that this Jesus was the Savior. Now, I don't know about you, but I typically take people to maybe the Gospel of John or the Book of Romans. But the Apostle Paul quotes several Old Testament texts. And I want to encourage you to turn 
two, two particular passages, and we'll give the passages to you on the other, on the screen above me on the, in the other cases. But the very first one, I need you to hold your place in Romans chapter 10 and then turn back to Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. When's the last time you heard a, a really good message on Leviticus? You know, I've asked a few people, what's the next book of the Bible we would like to go through as a church and study? Not one of you said Leviticus. Uh-uh. No, no one ever chooses Leviticus in that sort of scenario. But Leviticus will be the very first book that he quotes from in verse 5. And as you're turning to Leviticus, let me just quote to you what Paul says in verse 5. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness. So one, Moses is the author of the book of Leviticus. I'll show you the exact quote in just a moment. Many people have questioned the authorship of Leviticus. Paul does not. He says, For Mo Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. The person who does the commandments shall live by them. This is the righteousness that is based on the law. Now, the first time I read that, I was like, huh? <laughs> the person who does them shall live by them? Well, of course. He seems to be repeating himself. It's kind of nonsensical at first. But as you think about it, and as hopefully I can explain it, it actually makes perfect sense. In Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, he is specifically quoting verse 5, but to give you some context, so it makes a little more sense, even in the quote in Romans. Verse 1, he says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you once lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, obviously where he's about to take them, to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Walking means living, living it out. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So what's going on here? Well, it's pretty clear that he's talking about life in the land. He's not talking about salvation or life eternal. So why does the Apostle Paul quote this text? Well, let me give you an idea. If I had to take a survey in here, I would say about half the hands would be raised if I said, did you grow up in church? I did not. It wasn't until I turned 13 before I went to church. But I know a lot of people who grew up in church. And what they would do in their life is they would attend church with mom and dad. And not only would they attend church, but back in the old days, you came Sunday morning for Sunday school. Then you came to worship service. Then you had a potluck with the whole church every Sunday. And then that night you came back to what was called training union. And then you had worship service and probably choir practice as well. And then you would go to Wednesday night Bible study. And then you would have some other event during the week, and it would start all over. And that was your life. You were in church about 90% of the time, it felt like, according to some of you. And so you were doing what the New Testament even commanded. You were fellowshipping, you were loving, you were learning, you were doing all that stuff. So you were doing the commands, and you were being righteous in that. You were following God. You were loving God. Jesus says, if you love me, you will do what I say. You will do my words. 
So the righteousness that was based on the law, if you can think about it like this, we would call that sanctification. You are doing what the scriptures command. You are doing what God desires, and that's a good thing. Now, some interpreters have said, well, the Jews of Paul's day were trying to achieve a righteousness outside of God, outside of faith. In in a way, that is, you see, one of the things as you're talking to people trying to share the gospel with them, they will tell you all about the stuff that they do. They have maybe even been an elder in a church, and, and you're listening to them, and it's all about the doing, and that's good in a sense. But at some point, you see, life eternal comes down to a decision of faith in the heart. It's not the doing. It's a gift. And people, just like the Jews in Paul's day, apparently some of them, love to be able to do stuff, but they didn't want to make the decision to follow Jesus. And in Christianity, historically, from about 300 years after Uh, Jesus arose from the grave and ascended into heaven, Christianity really began to develop lots and lots of systems to do stuff. There are denominations and, and splinters of Christianity today that it's all about the doing stuff. If you go and do certain things, they will tell you that you're saved. And the apostle Paul says, no, It's not about the righteousness that's based on the law of doing stuff. Yes, if you do them, yes, you should live by them. But you're skipping the part that you should have started at at the beginning. And that's hard because as we just read in verses 1 through 4, that requires a decision of submission before God. If you do stuff, you don't really have to submit, right? I mean, do you really have to love Jesus to come here this morning? No, nah, you really don't. The worst that you really have to put up with is Andy, right? He causes problems. He's a troublemaker. I get to pick on Andy all the time. No, maybe, maybe you have to deal with Don or someone. No, it's, you don't really have to love people. You just have to show up. You, you might miss a, a, the beginning of a couple NFL football games. Your stomach might get a little, you know, gnawing at you. I'm kind of hungry deal, but... You don't really have to love Jesus. You don't have to submit to anyone. You can come and go as you please. But he continues on in verse 6, and he says, but the righteousness that is based on faith says this, and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 6 through 15. He says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Once again, the first time I read that, I'm like, I've shared Jesus with, with a, a good number of people, and no one's had that complaint. No one's ever, like, I've never had to wrestle with that issue. <laughs> like, what in the world is the Apostle Paul talking about here? He seems to be making this logical argument, and he's talking about going into heaven and going into the abyss. What in the world? Well, here's some context. If you hold your place, once again, turn to the Old Testament. This is the last time I'll ask you to do that. Deuteronomy chapter 30. We're going to look at verses 6 through 15, specifically verses 11 and 13. But one of the things most people don't understand in the Old Testament is it wasn't all about just laws, especially Deuteronomy. Most people think Deuteronomy is all about the commandments. But he is actually prophesying here of what would happen in the future when Israel would reject God in a time in the future where God would move 
in an amazing way in the hearts of the Israelites. So Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 6 through 15. Once again, this is Moses preaching to the people. The, the book of Deuteronomy basically is a collection of the sermons of Moses. And he says this, beginning in verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart in the heart of your offspring. If you recall, the New Testament talks about the very act of God's miraculous movement in our lives when we trust in him. This being born again, it is a gift of God. It is his grace. It is a miraculous event, something that we don't do in our own hearts. But it is God choosing us, us repenting and believing. It is a act of God. And here in verse 6, there's this amazing gracious act that God does in the midst of what we often think of as the law. And he, said, he continues on and he says, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. So we have the physical evidence, God's revelation in the Old Testament, Ten Commandments, Moses, and then we have this emotional, this relationship. And that relationship is initiated by God, this this new creation, he describes it as circumcising the heart, that we would love the Lord your God with, with all your soul, that you may live. And so there, it begins with this relationship of love, and then you live out. You, you do the stuff that God desires of you. You do his plan. And he, he continues on in verse 7. He says, And the Lord your God will put all of these curses on your foes and your enemies who persecuted you, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord. And keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord your God will take delight in prospering you. And as he took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. There is a decision to turn to God. And here's the, the quotation that Paul paraphrases and applies to Jesus. He says, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. It's not. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that you may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea or often termed the abyss that you would say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? So Moses is saying that this isn't complicated. It isn't rocket science. It's there for you to understand as well as the fact God has given it to you. You don't have to search out things. In the Apostle uh, Paul's writing, he takes it and he applies it to Christ. And he says, you know what? You don't have to go into heaven and somehow meet and talk with God, nor do you have to descend in the abyss and, as if you have to resurrect Jesus Christ. No, his life, body, death, and resurrection were presented historically to the people. They were eyewitnesses. In Paul's day, the idea of ascending into heaven or descending into the abyss it was the equivalent of the impossibility of man's efforts. In other words, there's no way you could accomplish this. One uh, theologian by the name of Hunter writes of this. 
And he says, no heroic attempts to storm the citadel of heaven or the kingdom of the dead are needed. Christ the Savior is here, incarnate, and risen. So the, Paul, the Apostle Paul is simply saying this. You don't have to worry about something that you can't achieve, go someplace that you can never go. The very creator of heavens and earth has revealed himself to you. It is available to you. You see, when you talk to your friends and family, they will probably have a thousand questions. And they will use those questions, if they're like people that I've talked to, to deny Jesus. They'll say, all right, what about dinosaurs? Or they'll say, what about children? Or what about the people who really can't understand the gospel? And they'll come up with a thousand legitimate questions that you can research and you, you can think through. But it's not about the what about I don't knows. It's about what you do know. And the Bible presents some very basic truths. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Even children can understand this. And what does he say? Well, he says this in verse 8. But what does it say? And once again, he quotes the end passage there in Deuter Deuteronomy that we just read. He says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And that word, he explains, is this. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Verse 9. Here's the famous passage that I talked about. Because if you, meaning anyone, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. It's simple, but let's unpack it. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. We talked about those three aspects of belief. Well, that's the volitional belief that is built upon the rational and the emotional. The rational is Jesus. Jesus was a person. He is not a philosophy. And you have to decide who is this Jesus according to the scriptures. They had to decide in their day of the eyewitness testimony, the eyewitnesses that still would have been alive, that they would have heard from, that would have traveled to Rome, that would have written them letters. Was this Jesus really the Son of God? Was he perfect? Did he voluntarily not only lay down his life and was raised again, but was he Lord? Was he God in the flesh? You see, you can say, oh, I believe Jesus was a good teacher. Yeah, he's a nice guy. Don't want to offend anybody. Yeah, Jesus, more power to him. You love Jesus? Great. I, I, don't, I believe in Jesus. You can say that. That's far different than confessing Jesus as Lord. Radically different. That requires a volitional decision to understand that Jesus was God. And guess what? Here's the real problem that we're going to face with a lot of things. You listening? People believe they're Lord here in America. We have elevated our opinions and our thoughts and our likes to the highest standard known because of the freedom that we enjoy in this great country. And until they're willing to submit and say, 
not only am I not God, but truly examine their own hearts and understand that when the scriptures say all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that means they can no longer look at their lives and look at it comparatively and compare themselves to other people and saying, well, I'm a pretty good guy or my children are pretty good. As a matter of fact, if you ask me about the children here, I would say they were great children. But I would say that comparatively. Because we all know, even as a child, children are not good. As a matter of fact, the main role of a parent is to raise up good children. If they came pre-programmed like that, you'd be like, yes! I can remember seeing the very first time of a lady and a group of other ladies. And, and she had this perfect little baby. And they were all together, and this little baby threw a fit. It was the first time mom had ever seen that. And she was just astounded, and all the other ladies had, like, their hand covered their mouth, trying not to snicker and laugh. They're like, all right, she's got it. It's like game on from that point forward, all the way until they're 18 and beyond, right? The game is on. We're going to try to mold this little baby into a good person. But the thing is, the standard is perfection, and we all fall short. And to recognize that in your own heart, and say, you know what, I, I've got a problem here, and I, and I can't solve it. That takes submission. It takes humility. And it takes honesty in evaluating not just philosophies on how to deal with that, but truth, that rational thought. If Jesus really was God, and, and he died not just because he was a good guy, but for the purpose of paying for my sins and yours, that no one else in history has ever done that, achieved that. And if he was really God, then I have, I've got to respond. I have to make a decision. And I can't just make it emotionally, even though I love God and I'm convicted. I have to understand what the truth of the, the situation is. In, in my passion, in my dire circumstances, as well as my incredible love for such a great sacrifice, I have to decide that Jesus is Lord. I have to willingly humble myself, bow my knee before a God in heaven and say, no longer me, but God. All three of those, rational, emotional, volitional. And he continues on. It's not just confess Jesus is Lord, and, but he says, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You do that and you'll be saved. He's saying that this resurrection, this historical claim is true and it's going to require faith because Jesus isn't still walking around today. He's not. I don't see him down on Main Street. I don't see him out at the football games. He's not there. I haven't run across him. No, Scripture says he ascended into heaven and he's at the right hand of the Father. And so it's going to require faith. The righteousness that is based on the law, or for us, the righteousness that is based on God's word, we live by that. We do certain commands, but there is an aspect of this original, pointed, specific time that requires faith. And here's the interesting thing, as, as J. Warner Wallace, this apologist, points out, every decision we make in life requires faith. Even life and death decisions on a jury trial you're never going to get to a point where there's absolute known facts where you can just say, that guy's guilty. Any good defense lawyer will be 
able to inject a certain amount of doubt in the decision. The question is, is it reasonable doubt? Is it reasonable? Because you will never get to the point where you can have absolute faith. In, in fact, the, the point of faith is not just simply saying it's faith. It, it really means faith. You have to take a step of trust. Again, not just emotional and not just volitional. Well, I'm a believe in this. A lot of people believe in certain things, but Christianity says, no, this is a historical claim based upon the resurrection of Jesus. Over 300 eyewitnesses, many more later on, according to the gospel accounts. The question is, have you made that decision today? Examining your own heart. Maybe you've come to church a lot, Maybe you're very familiar with the Bible. Maybe you you have some questions about a lot of stuff in, in the Old Testament especially. But can you understand that Jesus was the Son of God? That he loved you so much? That he willingly, according to the will of the Father, laid down his life? Seems pretty simple. And we'll close out in verse 11 and 12. He says, For the scriptures say, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Quoting Isaiah 28, 16. Verse 12 says this, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. This is Joel Two verses 32 forward. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This quote in Joel that he finishes out, once again, the Old Testament here. Notice this. And it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. Not just Jew, but Gentile alike. And he, he continues, he says, For it In Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those who the Lord calls. You see, the Holy Spirit is still alive and active, just like he was in the Old Testament. And his role is to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment that we might make a decision for God. And God uses the Holy Spirit, even today, to call us to him. The question is, is he calling you today if you've never made that decision? Everyone who responds and calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No matter how what you've done in the past, no matter your genetic makeup, no matter anything, everyone, and I mean everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. If you don't know that, you do now. And I'll I'll give you the opportunity right now as I invite our worship team to come forward to make that decision if you've never made it. And if you have made that decision, I want to encourage you to use this time to pray for those 
in your life that you've been trying to share with that they would make this decision, that you would use this very day to talk to them. The scriptures say, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Is God calling you this very day? I believe he is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, I thank you for a time when I was just 13 years old that someone shared this truth with me for the very first time. Being a teenager, Lord, you knew that I didn't know anything about the Bible. As a matter of fact, when people told me the Bible was the word of God, I laughed. But when I heard a preacher preach for the very first time about my personal sin, my problem that I had, and your great love for me, I knew I I wanted that. I didn't know it would entail what what my life has come to at this point. But I know there are people here right now struggling. Maybe they're afraid to make a decision. Maybe they're afraid to humble themselves. Maybe they're seen in this community as a leader and and, and Christianity in, in their eyes may be some silly faith. But Father, this creation isn't silly. Your sovereignty, your grace, your mercy, and above all else, your truth that you've revealed is simply real. And if they've never reasoned through your truth, I pray they they would do it this very moment and decide, are they a sinner or are they not? Can they remove it or can they not? Can anyone do it other than you? The very fact that they even acknowledge sin They know there is a right and a wrong that stands outside of mankind, Father. And the only way that occurs is if there is a God. And your truth says that you love them so much so that you gave your one and only son to die for them, that they should not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, as we pray, if there is anyone that would like to pray now, there are no magic words. It's just the meaning of what you... Your, your scripture just revealed to us, I pray that they would confess you as Lord in their life this very moment, quietly where they sit, that they believe that you raised Jesus from the dead. If they do that, you say they will be saved, every single one of them, Father. I thank you for the decisions that are made. I pray that you would give them boldness to live out those decisions now a life of righteousness in you. We love you and we praise you. In Christ's name I pray this.